I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in our series, Hearing God. For years, we've talked about our hope to develop and steward an openness to all the things the Holy Spirit does. So, what are those exactly? How are you? Wow, woo, good. Peter, good. You're playing Tears of the Kingdom over the weekend? Yeah. Ala, did you join in? Or are you just observing? Neither. Okay, great, great. Uh, in the summer of 2001, so this is some time ago, my van broke down on the side of the road somewhere between Augusta and Ringgold, Georgia. Now, I don't expect you, people of Van City Church, to know about Augusta, Georgia, but it wasn't exactly known as an attractive travel destination. Disgusta, we called it. In fact, I've been told it's still called Disgusta to this day. Apologies to our podcast listeners who may be in Disgusta, Georgia. I was, uh, in 2001, a poor itinerant musician, some 19 years of age. The van broke down on this craggy old highway. There was all kinds of dense white smoke billowing up from under the hood. And then we gathered up in a circle in the dry yellow brambles on the side of the road. And the question was this. Let me put you there. Let me paint a picture for you. The question was this, should we doctor the van up enough to make it to our destination where we'd committed to perform that evening, and we knew how to do this, to get the van to run another 50 miles or so, or turn back toward Disgusta where, as it just so happened, there was another concert that we wanted to attend, not perform, but we could not make this particular concert because of said commitment. Now, Some of us felt as if this was the perfect excuse. Van probably can't make it. Let's go to the other show. We are effectively off the hook. The more mature among us were insisting that we at least try to honor our commitment. Now, at that point, someone made an insane-sounding suggestion. I don't even remember who said it, honestly, but I do remember that they said, let's ask God, as in right there, in the crunchy, sun-bleached grass, the wind flipping everyone's hair all around, just ask God what we're supposed to do. None of us, I should tell you, had come from like charismatic backgrounds, but someone was somehow aware of at least like a crude, semi-accurate theology of listening prayer, and they explained the concept to the rest of us. And so we gave it a shot. I don't remember how this actually happened, but I remember we gave it a shot. The weirdest part was that after that silence, we sat, we listened, we looked up, opened our eyes, and just about everyone claimed to have had some visual pass through their imagination that seemed like an answer to the question. But two of them contradicted each other. Another wasn't about the question at all. And at least one made absolutely no sense. And I remember thinking as we stood there and bounced these visions off of each other, are we doing this right? Or is this even something that we should be doing? If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Tiffany just read. For the last few weeks, if you're just joining us, we have been in a series all about the ancient and divisive idea of hearing God. We have recommended reading in the back, in the annex. There's a counter with our book table. We sell all those books at cost. We don't profit at all. We just really believe in books and you reading them. There's all kinds of materials back there for you to go even deeper if you feel so inclined. For the first few weeks of this series, 
We wanted to make it abundantly clear that we believe the first and foremost primary foundational, the only infallible way that we hear from God is through the Bible. The Bible, we've argued at length, is the means by which we assess the validity of any given claim one might make about having heard from God. We believe God will never contradict himself, so he won't tell you something that contradicts what has already been revealed to the authors of Scripture through the Holy Spirit. Now, if you missed anything, go back, catch up on the podcast. But the Scriptures are not only the way that God, are, are not the only way that God speaks. Now that we've set that foundation, we are going to spend the remaining weeks of this series talking all about the way the Spirit speaks through creation, the way that Spirit, the Spirit speaks through the church, the way that the Spirit of God speaks through worship. But tonight and next week, we are going to set the stage for those conversations by talking about the kinds of things the Spirit does tonight across the board, that long list from Corinthians. And then next week, the unique value of prophecy. We'll get into all that in, in depth. And after next week, I'm actually, as it happens, embarking on my very first sabbatical. How about that? Wow, wow, that feels a little weird that everyone cheered. Uh, if you don't know, I became a pastor and embedded church planter at the church that planted ours in the early months of 2015. So the overseers have graciously offered me a few weeks away with my family to rest, regroup, and seek God's direction over the next season of my life and the life of our church. But you will be in very, very good hands, of course, as you continue this series that, honestly, I'm very excited about and hopeful that God teaches us something unique and beautiful in the coming weeks. All right, you guys ready to do some work tonight? Great. Uh, let's go. Let's look again at the passage that Tiffany read a few minutes ago. Look down at 1 Corinthians beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. There's a lot here, but the whole thing starts like this. Paul writes, Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Bummer. Bummer because... I am just one guy a little past the halfway point as far as life expectancy of the American male goes, and I'm not a bigwig in some global ministry movement. I'm not a liaison for any multi-denominational network. I'm just one guy with a lot to learn who has been in and around churches in various parts of the world, and even I can tell you right now that the gifts of the Spirit, as it's written here, aren't exactly a concept around which there's a ton of clarity and agreement, at least in the Western church, in the American expression of the Western. All over the world, there are huge groups of Jesus' disciples, entire churches and movements and denominations, who I think many of us would argue remain uninformed of the Holy Spirit and what he does, oblivious, unknowing, or in some cases distorted or willfully closed off to the things the Spirit does. Think about it. When you, for example, when you hear words like prophecy or tongues or miracles, are these things that you feel most modern disciples of Jesus understand in a healthy, balanced, theologically robust way? Or do those terms give you pause? Or are they confusing or strange? Or do you acknowledge them to be divisive or likely misunderstood? Do they make you kind of raise your guard and wonder, oh, where are we going? What's this going to be about? The weird thing is, so much of our misunderstanding around what's called here the gifts of the Spirit 
comes from a bit of writing intended to alleviate misunderstanding around the gifts of the Spirit. Sorry, Paul, done a terrible job with your writing here. We've done a terrible job with your writing here, not Paul. I should make that clear. So bear with me for the next few minutes as I attempt something of an overview in the different ways this passage has been interpreted, and I would argue misunderstood so that we can hopefully build a paradigm for how they should be understood and have been understood by the global church across the last few hundred years. So let's start here. One popular reading of 1 Corinthians 12 goes like this. A spiritual gift is a talent or ability one is given when they come to faith in Jesus and are baptized in the Holy Spirit. All disciples of Jesus have at least one gift. Some have more. Now, there are, I should point out, three or four lists of these gifts in the New Testament. One of them is here in 1 Corinthians 12. There's seven more items in Romans 12. You get prophecy, teaching, serving, encouraging, giving, leading, mercy. You get five more in Ephesians 4. That's the whole apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers thing. And some scholars argue for another list in Peter's letter later on. And this is one way that these passages have been interpreted, really only for about the last 50 or 60 years. But this is not how the New Testament has read and understood this passage down throughout church history. Look down again at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, now about the gifts of the Spirit. If you have an ESV, it reads, now about the spiritual gifts. Thing is, just about everyone agrees that this is not the best translation from Greek to English. The problem is that the term gifts of the Spirit is actually one word in Greek, or maybe you've heard it before, it's pneumatikos. Super tricky to translate into English because it's actually an adjective in want of a noun, and the noun is not there. It refers to something relating to or belonging to the Holy Spirit. So depending on the context, you might translate it as spiritual people or spiritual things. But literally, right here in 1 Corinthians, it's just spirituals. The word gifts is just not there. In fact, in all of the passages taken to describe quote-unquote spiritual gifts, meaning here in Corinthians, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, all of them, the Greek words for spiritual, which is pneumaticos, and gifts, which is charisma, never appear side by side at all. Go figure. Really, I would argue there's no such thing as quote-unquote spiritual gifts the way that this one very modern interpretation of this passage understands them. That is, there is no special Holy Spirit superpower gifted to one person and not another. But if that's true, and this is not the proper interpretation of the passage, it begs the question, what the heck are spirituals? What's up with these lists? Why lists at all? Well, the one in Romans 12, for example, the whole prophecy, teaching, encouragement, giving, leading, mercy, isn't a list of Holy Spirit superpower gifts. It's just a list of gifts in general. I don't even think the list is exhaustive. You could add to it things like musicianship or parenting or engineering or writing or cooking, whatever. It's just a list of gifts. The whole point of the passage is, in whatever way that God has gifted you, leverage that gift for the sake of the kingdom. 
Then in Ephesians 4, we're not reading a list of spiritual superpowers, but a list of different types of leaders, meaning apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, different types of wirings and personalities uniquely gifted to women and men for the sake of leading the church, which finally brings us back to 1 Corinthians 12. And this is where things get really interesting. It's not a list of spiritual gifts. It is a list of spirituals. In fact, Another translation, and my personal favorite, is that this is a list of stuff the Spirit does. In verse 7, Paul calls them the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In Greek, it means a revelation or a disclosure. For Paul, things like prophecy and tongues and healing, all that, they reveal or disclose the Spirit of God. They unveil the Spirit. It's not rocket science. You see someone, for example, very clearly sick or infirm. You ask God to make them better. He does. The incident reveals the kinds of stuff that the Spirit does. It unveils the Spirit. It's really that simple. And here's why this distinction is so crucial. Please listen to me on this. According to the logic of the recent reinterpretation of these passages, you might have one of these spiritual gifts and not the others. Or maybe someone else has spiritual gifts, but not you. But if you read this passage with most of church history, not as a list of spiritual gifts, but as all kinds of things that the Holy Spirit does, then that means that the entire list is open to every single disciple of Jesus. So with that in mind, look at the list again. Words of wisdom words of knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. These are the kinds of things that the Spirit of Jesus wants to do through you. And they are the kinds of things done by Jesus himself. Watch this. Look back at Corinthians 12, verse 8, where Paul writes, to one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. Now here, Paul doesn't like offer his own complex commentary on each item or list on the item, so you kind of have to build it out using a bit from the life of Jesus and the rest of the writings of the New Testament. A message of wisdom is a message from the Spirit of God through you to someone else who is in need of wisdom for navigating life. Now, to be clear, there are lots of times when no specific word from the Spirit is necessary because we have the Bible, we have the teachings of Jesus. So here's an easy, silly example. Say you're at a, you're married, you're at a hard place in your marriage, or you know, you're just bored and you just don't feel like you're personally being validated and made happy anymore, and you're wondering if you should just get a divorce for the heck of it, move on, you know, do what's best for you. You don't need a message of wisdom to tell you not to sin. The teachings of Jesus and the rest of the scriptures are uniformly clear on that one. Should you get a divorce just because things are hard or because you're bored? No. But what about something that's a little more ambiguous and not so clear in the scriptures? Something that's personal to you, like, is it the right time to start a family? Or is it the right time to make a certain bold vocational decision? Or is it the right time to move to a new place? things that aren't right or wrong per se, but they could be good or bad depending, and you just need wisdom. And that bleeds over into the next item on Paul's list. Look at the rest of verse 8. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. 
Now, this is a similar idea, but rather than just like general wisdom, this is a message of knowledge, meaning something specific that you couldn't possibly know unless the Spirit told you. You read this kind of thing in the life of Jesus quite a bit. Think of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, how he knew about her romantic history and how she was living and who she was living with, all that, despite never having met her and having no prior knowledge about her whatsoever. Jesus didn't know that stuff because he was God. He was God, to be clear, but he was also a man, a man who was not omniscient. He had to, in the language of the scriptures, grow in knowledge. He had to ask questions, the whole thing. He knew about the woman at the well through the power of the Holy Spirit, or what we would call a message of knowledge or a word of knowledge. Now, we do this kind of thing, and we go out on a limb to attempt this kind of thing at Van City every single week, pretty much. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was teaching as a guest at another church, and just before I prayed at the end of the sermon, or as I was listening at the end of the sermon, I paused for a moment and listened to God's Spirit, and I felt as if I had this really vivid image of a young man with blonde hair, a certain age range, with a very specific set of spiritual struggles in his life. So I just said that into the microphone. Minutes later, here comes the young man with blonde hair, the exact set of those spiritual struggles unique to his story. It was a very beautiful moment. We got to pray and talk. It's not always, though, overtly and instantaneously uplifting stuff that you get from a word of knowledge. For example, you know, when Jesus knew about that woman's long list of lovers, I doubt that her presenting emotion instantaneously anyway was, man, this feels really great. Now, of course, you read the story, the entire experience was beautiful and transformative, and she felt known by even Jesus' convicting word. It led to healing. It led to renewal. That's what happens when there's conviction followed by repentance and forgiveness. But a word of knowledge could be about sin in someone's life or about bad news. In fact, and this is a story that's old enough to laugh at now, so you have permission, but I kid you not, I know a woman who was stirred from sleep by the Spirit in the middle of the God-given night and told that her teenage son was using cocaine. So she stood straight up out of bed, walked down the hall, shook him awake, and then one drug test later, the word was verified. Ooh, boy, well, that's not the kind of thing you want to get woke up in the middle of the night. The Spirit of God just told me what you're up to. Now, that's a unique incident because of the relational dynamics. She was, as his mom, qualified to do that kind of thing. What do you do if you get a convicting word for someone else? My advice is never accuse always ask. Uh, so here's an example. I was on a prayer team with another pastor friend of mine at another church once, and we were praying over a young man who had, as I recall, uh, asked for prayer about his career. He needed to make a job decision. Now, this is someone with whom we had no relational equity. We didn't know him from Adam. If this is someone in your community and there's like collateral that you've built relationally, you have a different kind of dynamic. Obviously, you capitalize on that dynamic and say what's appropriate within that dynamic. But this is a guy that we didn't know at all. So he said, oh, I want prayer about my job. I have to make a big decision. We said, oh, okay, sure. We listen for a bit. And then my friend who's praying with me suddenly asks this kid out of nowhere, Hey, man, now forgive me if I'm way off, but are you struggling with addiction to pornography right now? And the young man who had just been eagerly waiting to hear from God suddenly went rigid and tears welled up in his eyes and he grimaced and he didn't say anything. He just nodded quietly. So we said, okay, let's pray about that first. Never accuse, always ask. 
Words of wisdom, general direction, words of knowledge, specific stuff from the Holy Spirit you could not know otherwise. Now, let's continue down the list. Verse 9. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Now, this is not faith like the kind of faith that all of us have to have just to be able to follow Jesus in the first place. You just have to have that all the time. This is a special, unique kind of faith to believe in the face of seemingly impossible odds. It's not even that everything will work out the way you want necessarily, but it's faith that God is in something or that God is behind something or that God is with you and that he's good. It is a sense of holy steadiness during a stormy season of life. Next on the list, verse 9 goes on to another, gifts of healing by that same Spirit. Now, you could say a whole lot about healing, but for the sake of brevity, healing is when God restores a person to a kind of wholeness. Physical healing is the obvious example, the restoration of a broken bone or the eradication of a disease, the instantaneous removal of back pain or a migraine or what have you. And I've seen this kind of thing happen. I've experienced it myself in my own body, my own life. It's incredible. But there's also all kinds of different healings, emotional and spiritual healing, healing from social anxiety or depression or, or healing from a warped view of God. There's relational healing. There's healing from trauma, past woundings, abuse, betrayal. There's healing from sin, addiction. There's healing and deliverance from demonic oppression. Jesus is in the business of healing all those things, not just broken legs and tumors and a cold. Often, all these various needs overlap and intersect both in the gospel stories of Jesus and today. And I have seen migraines that disappear in an instant or depression that is subverted into joy or one time a blind man who had his sight restored. Jesus heals people by his spirit. Let's keep reading in verse 10. To another, miraculous powers. Now, this one of all the items on the list is maybe the most complicated and difficult for us to understand, present company absolutely included. I don't even have an example to offer from here at Van City Church or, or my own experience, quite frankly. But these stories are absolutely well represented in the scriptures with, you know, Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Jesus of Nazareth, you know, walking on water, feeding thousands of people with one little boy's lunch. And then the stories go on in Acts and throughout the New Testament. And honestly, those stories have carried on through the history of the church and believe it or not, continue to this very day. Only now, most of the time, we hear stories about miraculous powers in what was once called the developing world, now is often referred to as the majority world. It seems as if incredible miracles often unfold in places of unique desperation or want, and less so in places of excess and health insurance and high-speed Wi-Fi and Amazon Prime. And that does not mean that Amazon Prime like quenches the spirit per se, or that you, you have to be so desperate just to see a miracle, miracle at all. You don't. But remember, the spirit is a person, not a force. And he acts and interacts relationally based on the way that we talk to him and pursue him like any relationship. Most of us are skeptical about amazing, miraculous things. It's the air that we breathe, skepticism. And in a certain sense, we actually can't help it. I just do not expect dead people to come back to life, much as I would love, sincerely love, to witness such a thing. And a few years ago, 
the church that I was working for, the church that planted ours, invited a gentleman from uh, India who had been working in Calcutta to come teach a team of pastors about how to better operate in the Spirit. Their church had been experiencing a unique move of God, and he shared a bit about what was going on in his part of the world in that season of their church. And he's telling all these amazing stories, some of which that I could relate to, things that I had seen in my own personal life uh, and in our church at the time in Portland. And then he just casually mentioned dead people coming back to life. And he mentioned it in the way that I would say, like, it was a good day, or we had some good worship in the gathering, you know. And, uh, and then he kept talking. And a few of us, in the, you know, in the seats were like, like, look at what? Did he just say dead people coming back to life? So 15 minutes later, he invites uh, Q&A time. And the first person to ask anything asked what was on everyone's minds. I don't think we heard anything after he said the thing about dead people come back to life. So someone raised their hands. Yes, what's your question? He said, did you say that you've had the dead raised to life in your church? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And we said, oh, okay, well, does that happen? And he said, yeah. And then naturally we had follow-up questions, not because we're just so calloused-hearted and, and, you know, skeptical, but, you know, you hear that kind of story. I would like to know more about Do you have a video or anything? He said, I said, have you, have you seen this happen personally? He said, yeah, I have. And I said, how did you know that they were dead? <laughs> he said, well, you know, they didn't have a pulse. They weren't breathing, in some cases for days. I said, oh, my God, how, how long did you pray? He said, as long as it took, days in some cases. And I said, and they got up and came back to life. And at that point, he started laughing at us. He was like, yes. He said, you guys know that this stuff happens in the Bible, right? Have you read this thing? You know that Jesus did this, that he said we would do this, and even in greater numbers. And he did, the early church did this, that it happens all over the world. And we said, you know, the room full of pastors were like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So we're just curious. <laughs> we're just curious about your story. That's all. We're trying to honor you, get to know you. The point is that that's who God is. That's intrinsic to the character of God. He is the God who raises the dead. Just because we, in our Western post-enlightened context, have been trained not to expect incredible miracles does not mean that God has suddenly stopped being God. And then the list goes on. It's not even over. Jeez. Keep reading in verse 10. To another prophecy. Now, there is so much to say about prophecy, in fact, that Paul goes on to say that we should uniquely desire the gift of prophecy. So we are going to talk all about prophecy at length next week. For now, let's keep moving. He goes on to another, distinguishing between spirits. This is the ability to know or at least sense if something like an event or a prophecy or a miracle or a manifestation of some kind is from the Spirit of God or from something else. It's the ability to ask, wait, and know, okay, is this from God or is this just me? Is this something sinister? Is this the enemy? But it's not just that. It's the unique ability to discern not just what God is up to in like a general sense in a season of your life or your community or your church, but it's also the ability to discern what the enemy is up to and why. Maybe you've heard someone talk about their sense that they or someone they know is under spiritual attack during a certain season of their life or during a certain season of very important kingdom work. Knowing such a thing is obviously advantageous for those of us walking with others in prayer and in shared life. If we know what God is up to and know what the enemy is up to, then we know how to pray and we know how to fortify ourselves in step with the Spirit. And we can know these things through God's Spirit. But there's more. In verse 10, look, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits. And then Paul writes to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues 
and still and to still another the interpretations of tongues. There's nothing controversial there, so let's just move on to the rest of the list. Tongues is actually really weird sounding, but the Greek word here is actually glossa, and more literally, it just means languages. This is when someone speaks in a language that they do not understand as an act of prayer and praise to God. So whereas something like prophecy, when you hear from God and you speak what you think is God is saying for the benefit of other people, tongues are just for God. Even so, sometimes a bystander is able to, by the same Spirit, understand this other language that they wouldn't know otherwise and to articulate what it means for the benefit of other people. Now look, I get it. I know as well as anyone how strange this one can sound to many of you and how abused it has been at a popular level and how it's kind of a punchline in pop culture. I don't have personally like a wild charismatic upbringing. Southern Baptist uh, tongues are just a sin in the, in the context that I was, in which I was raised. Uh, and I am, like many of you, wary of like Holy Spirit hype and sensationalism and chaos but I'll be honest with you, I pray in tongues privately. And I have been in a room where a trusted friend prayed in tongues and another person interpreted those tongues. And it was one of the most beautiful, incredible Holy Spirit experiences of my life to date. So, phew, all that is the list here in Paul's letter. Not an exhaustive list, we don't think, but it includes things like words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Now, we're almost done. Are you guys still with me? Great, thank you very much. Let me freak you out even more for a second. We want all of this for our church. I do. I want all of those things desperately for our church. I can't help it. I don't want to show up week in and week out just to teach Bible and theology, sing a few songs, and call it a night. And I love those things, quite frankly. I personally love all those things, but I just want more. And not to say that the Scriptures, oh, it's just not enough. I've dedicated my life to studying the Scriptures and to teaching the Scriptures. I believe in it deep down to the very core of my being, but I want to encounter and experience the living God through His Spirit. I want not hype, but experiences, which I know is weird, right? Me using the word experiences. Maybe you've heard people in church circles beat up on the term experiences. I find it absurd, personally. People pick on things like, you know, I don't know, dimmed lights or soft music playing as we pray or, or just the way that you light the room, projections, decor, whatever it might be. And they'll say, like, oh, it just seems like you're trying to drum up an emotional experience, to which I have always uniformly and without hesitation replied, we absolutely are trying to create an emotional experience. I mean, it's not all that we're doing, but how do you, who do you think designed you to have emotions? In his book about the Holy Spirit, Simon Ponsonby writes, I purposefully emphasize the word experience and will seek to show from Scripture the importance of experience. A non-experiential religion is suspect, for it fails to deal with the totality of our being. Yes, I want doctrine and theology and disciplined faithfulness. Hopefully, you guys know me, you know us, big on all those things. But I absolutely want to experience God with my heart and soul and in my emotions. 
How many healthy relationships do you have that are void of emotion or experience? Is God just an idea on paper, or is He the living God? Jesus understood the Spirit not as an it, but as a person. Not a human, but a person. Paul would go on to write about the Holy Spirit as someone who experiences emotions himself, saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He is not an intangible, impersonal force. He feels just like us, and he meets us in our felt experience. Paul writes, keep in step with the Spirit, meaning the Spirit has a will, a desire. He's going somewhere. The same cannot be said about an abstract concept. And yet, Many of us, either knowingly or subconsciously, think of the Holy Spirit as if He is not a He at all, but more like, you know, the nothing in the never-ending story, or, or like the Force in Star Wars, as if the Spirit is an impersonal, abstract thing. But that is not the way that Jesus or the authors of the Bible understand the Holy Spirit. And the difference is huge because you cannot experience a personal, intimate relationship with an abstract, impersonal thing but you can know a person. So when I talk about wanting more of the Holy Spirit, I mean it the same way that I want more of my kids or my wife or my closest friends. I want more relationship. I want to know them better. I want more intimacy. I want more connection. And since so much of our language around the Spirit is complicated or metaphorical or anthropomorphic, we inadvertently slip into all sorts of misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit. For example, if you've been to Van City more than once, then you've likely heard us say something like the ancient prayer, Holy Spirit, come, which is, granted, a funny way to talk about someone that is omnipresent. And for disciples of Jesus, indwelling mean inside of us. But it's not a funny way to talk about someone with whom we are in relationship. When we invite God's Spirit to speak, we're not negating that he's in us or that he's everywhere. We are acknowledging that he is a person, not a thing, and we want to know him better. Scoot closer, Holy Spirit. Sit with me, Holy Spirit. Open my eyes to see you. Open my ears to hear you. Holy Spirit, come close. For those of you who have had a close friend for like more than a decade or a long period of time or who have been happily married for a long time, you know that though someone might be your friend or your husband or your wife on day one and on year 10 and on year 20, that's their status, that's part of their identity, you can still absolutely have and know more or less of them. And we want more of the Holy Spirit. When we say, come Holy Spirit, we are asking for more relational intimacy. And that is why the invitation of Jesus about the Spirit then and now was, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. When you want more of someone, it doesn't just happen for your wanting it. If I realize that my wife Abby and I have drifted in closeness, or if it's just that we got busy or distracted and time flies by with no real connection or intimacy or togetherness, then it would be right for me to sit down and say, I miss you. Let's make sure we have time together. I want to hear from you. I want to talk to you. I want to be close to you. All of that. Now, maybe for some of you, you've yet to experience what you would describe as real intimacy with the Holy Spirit, and that, too, only changes when you enact measures to change it. 
One of the fruits of the Spirit is not coercion. The Holy Spirit will not force you into intimacy, but He will draw near to you as you draw near to Him. Most of us, if we follow Jesus, we believe intellectually at least in the idea of the Holy Spirit. But if there's not yet intimacy, or if there has been, but now there's a lapse in it, then my prayer for our church, for you, for myself, my invitation is to remember what Jesus said. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. We want all of these things for our church. So let me pray and ask again, not the first time and not the last time, for God's Spirit to come. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.